Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us bow before our maker. Let us pray. Oh God, we do come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. We bow before you in worship today. We pray you would be present with us always, that you would dwell with us here today by your Holy Spirit. And so with your light and your spirit, guide our souls, our thoughts, and our actions, that we may hear your word, and that your healing power may be in us and in your church universal. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The first hymn is number 16, Come, Let Us Sing Unto the Lord.
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, thus says scripture. Let us now confess our sin before almighty God. Gracious God and heavenly Father, maker of heaven and earth, you are good in every way and your word is true. We thank you for graciously sending your Son, who lived and died for us. We confess this morning our sinfulness and need of your divine pardon. We have failed to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Show us mercy, we pray, forgive us our sins, and strengthen us for obedience in the week ahead. Protect us from the lies of Satan and the voices that would cry out against the glory and righteousness of your Son. Fix our eyes firmly on him and sustain us as we boldly confess to the world the truth of his gospel. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All those who do have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Beloved people of God, scripture says, If a person is overtaken in any trespass, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Sin is a burden. It is a heavy weight that we carry. We experience that in the forms of guilt, um, regret, sorrow, all those uh, things that accompany the burden of sin. And we all have our burdens. We have the sins with which we struggle, the sins that from time to time we find ourselves doing. And sin is a reality that presses on us um, constantly. They are not all known to others. We don't make our sin, nor do I think we should make all of our sin known to everyone. There might be a trusted few we want to share that with. Hopefully you could, if if you're feeling the weight of your sin, share that with the session, with me, with the elders. But sin does manifest itself in our lives, even if we don't, if we want to hold it close. And when it does, we are to uphold the one who is struggling with sin. So when sin becomes manifest, when it comes out, we in the church are to uphold that one who is struggling with the sin. Those who sin must confess their sin and seek to turn away from it. For the church's part, we bear one another's burdens by praying for that person, by encouraging him or her to be obedient, by coming to him or her again and again in stubborn care, care that continues and doesn't give up trying to reach out to that person. We can also pray for wisdom from God in, in, in order asking him how to bear that burden because it's not always clear or easy. Now, it's much easier to avoid the sin of others, and I think that's what happens a lot of times in the church, is we just want to pretend that there's nothing going on, there's no sin that we struggle with, even though we confess it every Lord's Day. But we tend to want to push it down, hide it, pretend it's not really there. And that's not healthy, quite frankly. The church needs to be a place where sin can be dealt with openly, honestly, and with love, 
and, and uh, the forgiveness of Christ. It is much easier to, to avoid the sin in others, but not to correct it, not to call for obedience, not to let our hands get dirty. It's easy to stand in judgment and point our finger at that person without remembering that we too have our sin. And so there are many things that we have to watch out for in this. The only way we can bear each other's burdens in the church is because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upholds us. Because we're upheld in his grace, we can do this. The grace of God holds us up so we can bear one another's burdens. This is the will of God for us in Jesus Christ. Let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 279, Christ Jesus Lay in Death Strong Bands.
Let us bring our prayers of intercession to our Lord who hears them because we've been joined with Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, who in Jesus has loved us with your everlasting love, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you for our creation, for we would not exist without your work, our preservation, and all these blessings of this life that we enjoy and experience. We thank you for our fellowship together in Christ, our new life together. We thank you for the abundant material goods we have received, for the good of family, and for the freedom to worship you. But above all, we thank you for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world from its sin by our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. We praise you for who you are. You are indeed the God of our salvation. You are our creator and redeemer, and we wait for you all the day long. Make us, we pray, to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths, the paths of life. Let us know as we go out from worship we, are, we depend upon your wisdom and your, your uh, guidance as we walk the path of Christ in this world. Make us wise by giving us knowledge of your creation so that we might know how to live according to how you have ordered it. Teach us Christian discipline and self-control so that we may live as followers of Christ and be mindful of all that he endured and sacrificed for our sakes every day and how he was made perfect through sufferings. Cause us to live out that identity that you have given us in our baptism into Christ. Give us strength for the battle of sin and grace to resist temptation. Guide and bless your church, O Lord. Lead us in the way of the cross. Deliver us from the sins with which we struggle. Hear our prayers concerning the way of following Christ. We pray for all who labor in service to Christ, not only in this land, but throughout the world. And especially this morning, we remember and pray for uh, Dale Van Dyke, the ministers at Harvest Church. We also pray for um, Mike McCabe and Sam Fulta with their families in Asia, Hiro Hakobor, his family in Ukraine. Here are our prayers for them. For our neighbors, we pray, friends and family who ignore Christ or who have no faith in him or even deny that he is the Lord and Savior of the world. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us opportunities to speak with them of the great things that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and how he is Lord of heaven and earth. Here are our prayers for those who come to mind. We pray for our nation. Keep us safe. May those who govern us work together to make fair and just laws. Deliver us from ideologies that promise what they cannot deliver. We pray for Joe Biden, our president, our senators, Debbie Stabenow, Gary Peters, for Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, and all who serve as judges in our land. We also pray for order and peace in our nation. Hear our prayers. Guide, direct, and govern the affairs of this world to your appointed end. May there be a lasting peace and just government in those lands where there is war and strife, with Russia and Ukraine and Syria, with the continual uh, rumbling 
between Iran and other nations in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, Central America, Palestine, and Israel, North Korea, for the Uyghur people in China, in our own cities where violence has increased. Bring to justice those who kill civilians and commit atrocities. And may people in our country treat each other with respect and have respect for the rule of law. We also pray you would stop the, the human trafficking, the sex trade in our nation, and the fentanyl and drug traffic. Hear us all as we pray for the needs of this world and our own nation. Remember, heal, and strengthen your people, O Lord, in this congregation and among our friends. Hear our petitions for Luca and Frida, for Julie and Leah, Jeff, Fawn Bartoski, and also for Eduardo and our friends Becky and Karen, Chris, Tom, Phil, Bob, Angie, Gladys, Dominic, Caroline, and those we name in silence. Comfort the grieving and the faint of heart in the midst of the sorrows and difficulties of this world. We pray you'd heal those who are ailing. Give good medical care to all those who need to be helped in their health. Grant that by the power of the Holy Spirit they may go upon their way rejoicing and give you continual thanks for the victory of Christ over our sin and the powers of death and the devil. Holy Father, we thank you for giving us those who have been fathers to us, and we thank you for fatherhood and how it gives us life, but also gives us uh, direction and, and uh, helps us understand who we are, our, our identity. Help us learn how to love out of strength and to be courageous and to lead the way. We beseech you finally for the things we need as your congregation, enough money to do the work you've called us to do, for fellowship with one another, even when the distances are great. We pray for contact with new people and more people to be added to your church. Help us, O Lord, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Receive our petitions in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
receive them with our gratitude, and that through us all people may know the riches of your love in Christ. Amen. Join me as we uh, pray for the, illumi- or the Spirit's illumination on us as we enter God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name, uh, to worship together, to fellowship together, and to be blessed by you. We uh, echo with uh, our our brother Peter, in saying that we have nowhere else to go, that you hold the words of eternal life. And we turn to your word now, asking that by your spirit we would understand and have ears to hear uh, what we hear, and that you would uh, cause your word to uh, be planted in us for our edification, and that we might draw nearer to you in understanding and in faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading this morning, Old Testament reading, comes from Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 49, and I ask you to join with me. Hear this, all peoples, both low and high. My mouth shall speak wisdom. I will incline my ear to a proverb. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Those who trust in their wealth. Truly, no man can ransom another. For the ransom of their life is costly, that he should live on forever. For he sees that even the wise die. And leave their wealth to others. 
their dwelling places to all generations. Man in his pomp will not remain. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Our epistle reading is from the epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 4, first 10 verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Finally, our gospel reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a a respected member of the council, who who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. The word of the Lord. We've come to the burial of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark, or let me rephrase that, in the Gospel of Mark, we've come to the burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus' burial comes right after his death on the cross. But we must not forget that his death and burial are preceded by the front end of the Gospel of Mark, which is most of the story of the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 15, and you've got all that, the previous chapters before that. 
Sometimes in the church, we talk like the gospel, the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, is restricted to Jesus' death and resurrection. And certainly that is at the heart of it. However, for Mark, and I might say Matthew, Luke, and John, the gospel of Jesus Christ is everything from his birth to his resurrection and ascension. So remember how the Gospel of Mark begins in chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Mark goes on and tells you that Gospel. And what does that Gospel include? Well, everything in the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the whole Gospel from his birth to his resurrection. And what we've heard from the Gospel of, what have we heard from the Gospel of Mark when we consider the whole of it? We've heard that Jesus Christ is the Lord over people and sickness, sin, over the law, demons, the stormy sea, and death. In other words, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And we've heard that Jesus Christ is the Lord who goes to the cross for us. Keep this in mind as we listen to the story of Jesus' burial. Now, the Gospel of Mark accentuates, or might say accents, Jesus' death in several ways. Mark is underscoring... Jesus' death over and over again in our text. It's like when, when we draw several lines under a word in a sentence in order to draw attention to it, if you still write. <laughs> it's a little harder to do with the computer to keep trying to draw underlines, but, but it's a way of accenting that word to make it stand out, to draw attention to it, and that's what Mark does with Jesus' death. First, Mark tells us about Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was a town about 25 miles north of Jerusalem. This Joseph was a pious Jewish man who asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And there are several things about his request that underscore Jesus was dead. For one thing, it was the day before the Sabbath. In other words, it was Friday and the day was coming to an end. We don't track the day like that. We say the day ends at midnight, right, and then a new day starts. That's not how the Jews calculated the day or, or track the day. They, For them, it stopped at sunset. The day came to an end. Jesus died in the afternoon on Friday, and therefore it was at the close of the day. The end of the day was coming soon. Our Old Testament lesson this morning was the law in Deuteronomy that requires the bodies of those convicted of a crime to be laid in a grave as soon as possible. This was especially expedient before the Sabbath because no work was to be done on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to go out and do work to to pull a body down and to bury it. The longer a body was out in the open, the more it would be desecrated, odious, smelly, So the Jewish custom was to bury the deceased body as quickly as possible. And according to the law of Moses, leaving a body hanging on a tree would bring a curse upon the land. So it wasn't just politeness or trying to remove smelly things from the public view, but it was also trying to avoid the curse of God upon the land for leaving a body hanging on a tree. The Gospels of Matthew and John describe Joseph of Arimathea as a follower of Jesus, but it's interesting, Mark doesn't say anything about that. Mark only highlights Joseph's piety. He adds the comment that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God, but that is left sufficiently vague, and it only serves to really reinforce Joseph's sincere Jewish piety. Many faithful Jews were looking for the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, if we want to harmonize this with the other Gospels, then we can, we can kind of come to the conclusion Joseph did become or was a follower of Jesus Christ. But Mark doesn't highlight that here. That's not his main concern. 
Joseph acted quickly to get Jesus' body down from the cross. The Romans often left the bodies on the cross as a warning to violate the, uh, not to violate their law. If you're walking down the road, and in some places, after Rome had conquered a city, there, they did this, uh, well, actually it was um, Alexander the Great, but the Romans did the same kind of thing. Alexander the Great conquered uh, Tyre, Sidon, those, those uh, two cities that were up the coast, and because those two cities did not let him enter in right away when he demanded it, he had to besiege the city for a couple years. When he conquered it, when he invaded it, he took out 2,000 people, men, women, and children, and crucified them along the road. Can you imagine walking down a road through Palestine, seeing 2,000 people hanging on trees? What would that, on, on the crosses, what would that say to you? You better not mess with these people. You better not mess with Alexander the Great and his army. You better not mess with the Romans because they're the rulers and you do what they say. So the Romans like to leave the bodies on the crosses as a warning. And since there was no family and friends coming forward to remove Jesus' body, Joseph wanted to do it. With the action of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea keeping the law of Deuteronomy 21, Mark underscores that Jesus was dead. Now, we as Christians, and the scripture tells us he was not a criminal, but he was crucified as a criminal. So the law does uh, relate to what happened to Jesus and to bring, get his body down off the tree. Mark underscores that Jesus was dead by Joseph wanting to do that. Another underscores Pilate. In order to remove Jesus' body from the cross, Joseph had to ask for permission from the one who ordered Jesus' death, and that was Pilate. The Roman soldiers were guarding the site of the crucifixion. They were not going to allow anyone to do anything to the bodies without authorization. Joseph plucked up his courage. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body. Pilate granted Joseph's request, but Pilate, uh, Mark says that Pilate was surprised. Why was he surprised? Well, because often it took hours for those who were crucified to die. Hours. It was designed as a way of torturing someone while they died. It wasn't an instant death. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. So he verified with the centurion in charge of the soldiers at Jesus' crucifixion that Jesus was dead. Jesus' death was verified, and Pilate released the body to Joseph. That also underscores Jesus was dead. Mark draws another line, so there's just a lot of lines that Mark's drawing under this, under Jesus' death. Mark draws another line under Jesus' death with the word corpse. Verse 45, Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. And he doesn't use the more basic word for body. He uses a word that signifies a violent death. That word corpse was often used to indicate there had been a violent death. Jesus Christ suffered a violent death on the cross, and with that, Mark underscores Jesus' death. The text of Jesus' burial is short. Um, the elders are always glad when I have short readings. I think uh, a couple times I've given them long readings full of names. But um, no, they're glad to always read for you. But the, um, the text is short. But Mark has not finished drawing the lines under Jesus' death. There are a lot of lines that Mark has drawn. And he tells us that Joseph prepared Jesus' body for burial. Verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud and took Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud. Now, this was common Jewish practice for preparing a body for burial. Jesus' body was wrapped up in the cloth. And that also underscores Jesus' death. 
Joseph placed Jesus' body in a rock cave. Jesus was interred. The Jews carved out small caves in the hillside near Jerusalem. It was a soft kind of rock. I don't know if it was limestone or maybe uh, some kind of volcanic rock, and they could carve. And today they find these, they know where these, uh, some of these burial sites were. They could carve out the rock in, and uh, make a, a place to lay the bodies. And so Joseph had such a cave. He, um, he, it was large enough for the body to be laid inside. Sometimes these were on narrow ledges, Inside and the body's placed there. And, and, and so Joseph brought it there. He laid Jesus in one of these tombs. And that also underscores that he was dead. And then finally, Mark draws one more line under the death of Jesus, and it's with the stone. Joseph rolled a heavy stone over the entrance to the tomb. And this was a com- also a common Jewish practice when a body was buried, especially there in those hills around Jerusalem. So with this detail, Mark makes his last underscore that Jesus was dead. I didn't bother to count all these up, but there are quite a few, aren't there? Mark's underscoring Jesus was dead. Now, those who first heard Mark's gospel would have easily recognized from from the story that this story makes it clear that Jesus was dead. It's It's just overwhelmingly clear. Many Bible scholars believe Mark emphasized Jesus' burial because some of the Jews began to say that Jesus had not really died on the cross. And we might sit here and think, how could anyone have ever survived that? But apparently it it did happen. So the thought was that the Jews would say he had fallen unconscious, he was taken down before he died, his disciples carried Jesus away and then nursed him back to health. It was an early Jewish argument against Jesus dying on the cross, and it was intended to undermine the gospel. The Jews knew that this was a pivotal, central point in Jesus' work and part of the gospel, and so they were trying to take that away from the the church. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, push back against this attack and explicitly say that Jesus truly died. Another subversion of the gospel came later from certain Gnostics, who wanted to remake Jesus into a divine being who did not die. They wanted a God who would help them get past this life encumbered by a mortal body and death. And they didn't believe that for that God to go to take a mortal body and to die was the way it should be done. It didn't make sense for God, the eternal God, to have a body for the eternal God to die. Jesus' death and burial contradicted what they believed. Early Christians used the gospel text of Jesus' burial to unequivocally affirm that Jesus had indeed died and buried. Early Christians, Christian communities used these texts to do that. And how did they do that? Well, they wrote early creeds. They came up with early creeds that you would confess when you came into the church. And it became, this became an article of some of those early creeds in the Western church, like the Creed of Hippolytus, which asks... Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and was buried and rose the third day, living from the dead? And that creed became known as the Roman Creed. Hippolytus was a bishop in Rome. became known as the Roman Creed, which by the 3rd or 4th century became the Apostles' Creed, known as the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed uh, it was developed from that creed, and it, continu- it, it, it confessed, and we continue to confess it today, And I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. It's a fundamental part of our faith as Christians. It's also in the Nicene Creed. Mark's gospel 
as do all the Gospels, hammer home the fact that Jesus died and was buried. But it's not just ancient people who needed to hear that Jesus died and was buried. We need to hear it also. We think of death mostly in biological terms today, or medical terms. Death is when the heart stops beating. Death is a cessation of brain activity. Death is the end of a life. When someone dies, that's it. It's all over, and that's about how we think of it in in our secular society. In the Bible, death is a realm. It's the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, it's Sheol. You heard reference to Sheol in um, our Psalter response. Sheol is where all the dead dwell in a shadowy, sub-existent state. There is no meaningful life after death in that place. Job says, as the cloud fades and vanishes, you know, the clouds in the sky as they just sort of dissipate and vanish, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. In the New Testament, several names are associated with the place of death, and Hades is one. It's a word taken from the Greek language. It's the underworld. It's where Hades rules. In the New Testament, Hades is used for the realm of the dead, and it's also used for the ruler of the dead. You see, so Hades has both those references. In in Matthew 16, Jesus refers to Hades in the sense of a realm when he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Jesus refers to it as a realm. Revelation 20 speaks of the final judgment, and it personifies death and Hades as rulers. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Death is a realm with a ruler. When someone dies and is buried, they're going into that realm. Gehenna is another word used in the New Testament that identifies God's judgment with the place of the dead. It expands death and Hades into the much bigger dimension of God's judgment. In Matthew 23, Jesus identifies Gehenna with hellfire and final judgment. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You serpents, you broods of vipers, brood of vipers, how are you to escape from being sentenced like a judgment to Gehenna? The Bible speaks of the place of the dead as a realm with a ruler, the devil, where God's judgment is finally worked out. The good news is that Jesus died and was buried. Do you think of his burial as good news? It is. He entered the realm of the dead. Jesus entered Sheol. He entered Hades. He entered Gehenna. There are three important scripture texts that talk about Jesus going into the realm of the dead. And one is in Acts chapter 2, where Peter speaks of it in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. There is another one in 1 Peter, and the third is in Ephesians 4, which is our epistle lesson today. And in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul uses Psalm 68 to say that Jesus Christ, who ascended, is also the one who descended, descended where? Into the lower regions of the earth. Traditionally, the church has interpreted this text in Ephesians 4 as Jesus descending into Hades, into the place of the dead. 1 Peter suggests the same, 1 Peter 3. It says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went 
and proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Not only did Christ become a man in this sinful world, he also entered into the realm of the dead and hell. Now, to our clinical, medical, modern minds, this all sounds like ancient mythology and superstition. The realm of the dead sounds like an ancient cosmology, a way of understanding the the universe that divides the universe into what is on the earth and what is above the earth and what is under the earth. And so we might dismiss it out of hand because we have a modern cosmology, we have a modern way of understanding the way the cosmos is, the universe. But when we think with scripture, our minds are open to the full impact and depth of Jesus' death. And there's an early, he's really before the church fathers, he was in the second century, or the end of the second century, but Irenaeus is a uh, helpful theologian here, early church uh, bishop, Lived, um, he was bishop in Lyon, France. I always want to say Lyons, but Lyon, France. And he wrote a large work called Against Heresies. And Irenaeus says this about Jesus. Wherefore also Christ Jesus passed through every stage of life, restoring all to communion with God. Each stage he passed through. From conception to childhood to full adult, Jesus went through every stage, every age, in order to redeem our full humanity. That's what Irenaeus says. And what Irenaeus says about Jesus passing through the stages of life can also be said about the realms of this fallen world. Jesus entered into the realm of this sinful world, this world we live in, the sinful world. And this is what we heard in the first part of Mark's Gospel. The dominion of sin, that's what the Apostle Paul calls it in his letter to the Romans. This world full of sickness and demons and death and pride and selfishness, the place where sin rules and there's hatred and anger and violence and lies and life-destroying deception, this world that we know very well. It's the sinful world, and Jesus came into it and passed through it. This realm where nations live under the power of sin and they act terribly towards each other, sometimes they can have sort of this... this, uh, uh, live side by side as neighbors, but many times they invade each other like Russia has invaded Ukraine. So Jesus Christ went into this realm, this sinful realm. Jesus also entered the realm of hell where the devil rules. It's where God's abandonment is full and complete. The severity of God's wrath is also in full measure in hell. And Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he entered that realm? And Jesus entered the realm of the dead, as we heard in our text this morning about Jesus' burial. The place where death rules and the dead are clutched in death's frozen grasp. And they cannot wiggle free, they can't bribe their way out of it. To use the language of 1 Peter, it's a prison. Jesus passed through all of these realms. These realms and powers are not fanciful. They push into our present life. We know something about them just from our present life. They push in. We can see the realm of death and evil penetrating into this world with the ethnic cleansings that have happened in the last 100 years. They've happened all over the world. With the Serbs in the Bosnian conflict, with Saddam Hussein's attack on the Kurds in Iraq, in Rwanda, with the military regime and its assault on the Rohingya people in Myanmar, 
with the Nazis in Germany who wanted to eradicate the Jews, and even in our own nation where there were some attempts at ethnic cleansing with some of the Native American tribes. We can see the realm of the devil pushing into this world with the sheer evil of human trafficking and the gruesome assault and murders by killers like Ted Bundy and Brian Kohlberger. Jesus entered these realms of sin, death, and the devil, and he entered them as the Lord in order to redeem us. He entered them as the faithful, obedient servant who ought not to be, who could not be, held captive by sin, death, and the devil, because he was righteous and he obeyed God perfectly. And because he was the Holy Lord, he crushed the rulers of these realms and defeated their power. That's what he did when he went into these realms. This is what John Calvin says about what Jesus did. Therefore, by wrestling hand-to-hand with the devil's power, with the dread of death, with the pains of hell, he was victorious and triumphed over them, that in death we may not now fear those things which our prince has swallowed up. Now I'll ask you a question. What if Jesus had bypassed just one of these realms of power? What if Jesus had entered into the realm of sin and the realm of the devil and hell, but he avoided the realm of death? Or to put it in terms of Mark's gospel, what if Jesus was not buried? If that had happened, then we would be redeemed from every realm except whichever one Jesus did not enter. If the Lord Jesus had not entered the realm of sin in order to redeem us, then we would still be under the power of sin. If Jesus had not entered the realm of hell where one is utterly forsaken by God, then we might be freed from the power of sin, but we would still face the abandonment of God. If Jesus had not been buried and entered the realm of the dead as our Lord and Redeemer, then we would die and remain under the power of death. But the gospel declares to us that Jesus Christ entered all these realms and came forth in victory. He was raised in triumph over sin, death, and the devil. Our Ephesians lesson says, He who descended is also the one who ascended. Jesus Christ ascended in triumph, and he led a host of captives. Who were these captives? Sin, death, and the devil. He entered all the realms of power, and he delivered us from all of them. You who have been baptized into Christ and have faith in him no longer have reason to fear these powers. They cannot hold you in their power. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has freed us from them. The Lord Jesus Christ was buried for us in order to deliver us from the power of death. I've been reading the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And one of the things that you don't get in like the Broadway version of it and all that is all the commentary. I mean, it it would be hard to reproduce the commentary that you get from Hugo as he's telling his story. He sets the story in the context of the June insurrection against the monarchy of Louis Philippe in 1832. And over a period of 50 years, there were several, several uprisings in France, beginning, of course, with the French Revolution in 1789. So after that, 50 you know, years plus years after 1789, there continued to be insurrections and these kinds of revolutions. And Hugo was sympathetic to these revolutions because he believed they initiated progress in society. And progress, he says, leads to utopia. 
Throughout Les Miserables, Hugo adds his commentary on this progress, and here's one thing he says. Until universal peace be established, until harmony and unity reign, progress will have revolutions for stations. Revolution necessarily requires death, heroically giving up of oneself for this ideal. In the secular world, you see, death is useful. But belief in progress says nothing about how modern progress will one day overcome death. Death is useful in terms of progress and revolution, at least for those who are trying to reach this utopia, but they never say how modern progress will one day overcome death. Modern progress is trying to reverse death, forestall death, jump over death. The the Daily Mail news outlet in the UK and in England has a report from, the report was from 2018, about a company right here in Michigan, right over in Clinton Township, founded by Dennis Kowalski called the Chironics Institute. And what this company does is it uses extreme cold temperatures to freeze the corpse of someone who's newly dead in order to, at some point, use stem cell therapy to bring the frozen dead back and even give them a younger age to kind of reverse the the process of death. And the website says that cryogenics could be our last, I'm sorry, our best chance at cheating death. That's happening right here, and it's still in business. The problem in our secular world is that we cannot get to the other side of death, the realm of the dead, where the power of death rules. Our secular world does not even acknowledge that there's such a realm, a power of death. Death is nothing more than the cessation of the heart and brain activity. In the spiritual universe of the Bible, this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus died and was buried, and he entered the realm of the dead. And there he was victorious over the power of death, and he broke open the gates of death. In the language of Ephesians, Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, and with his resurrection, he burst out of the grave and triumphed over the power of death and victory. Jesus is the way out of the realm of death. The secular world wants you to trust progress to overcome the power of death. In the church, we're thankful for good progress that comes without destroying life to achieve its ends. However, we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior who defeats the power of all the spiritual realms, sin, death, and the devil. Our witness in this world is to the Lord Jesus, not modern progress. We've got to constantly come back to that because there's a huge bandwagon out there that wants to pull you on about progress in our society, modern progress. It wants to ignore all the problems that have come with modern progress, but it's trying to pull you on and get you to to jump on board. And that's not our witness. Our witness of the church is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So go into the world confessing that Jesus Christ was crucified, he was dead and buried, and that and buried is not a little aside. It's very important to what he did. And on the third day he rose from the dead. Go into the world and proclaim that there is one who has passed into the realm of the dead and overcome its power in order to redeem us for life with him. Let us pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of the enemy, grant us so to die daily to sin, 
that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection and with the hope of his eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So please stand. Let us confess our faith with the creed and the bulletin. And look for that word buried. How could you not after that sermon? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is Welcome, Happy Morning, number 268.
Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, a great promise to us as we come to this table. The Lord instituted this meal, and when he did, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is a covenant meal with God. We sit and are brought and invited to this table by our Lord, and he joins us, he is present with us, and it becomes a covenant meal, as all the covenants were in Scripture, where the Lord was present with his people. We come surrendering our wills and being responsible to God alone, and it's not our task anymore to try to follow the authorities, um, the authorities that try to present themselves as ultimate, as above everything else, those authorities in our world that claim more than they are. It's not our job, and we shouldn't feel like we should be following those as an ultimate authority. Instead, we are to, sur- to surrender ourselves to our Lord and Savior. We're to be obedient to God, which transforms anything else that we call itself God. Our pledge as we come to this table is to live as faithful members of God's community of grace and peace, that is the church. We join hands with our fellow Christians in a common loyalty to God. All of this is laid upon us. All of this is what's incumbent upon us as we come to this table and share in this covenant meal. This is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life. And should we not say every realm of life and the realms beyond this life that were mentioned in the sermon. We are to live in love and concern for each other. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized, publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members of a Christian church to this, the Lord's table. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Him. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. And we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. It is indeed right and just and our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For as the time of his passion and resurrection drew near, the whole world is called to acknowledge his hidden majesty as that word and that gospel goes forth. The power of the life-giving cross reveals the judgment that has come upon the world and the triumph of Christ who is crucified. He is the victim who dies no more. He's the lamb that was once slain who lives forever. He's our advocate in heaven to plead our cause exalting us there to join with the host of heaven, forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Receive our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and as we follow his example and obey his command, granted by the power of your Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and the cup may be for us a communion in his body and blood. For we do receive them with faith, that faith that has been uh, confessed by the church from the beginning, a very simple faith in its nutshell, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. 
Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom. And with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ, your Son, our Lord. Accept through him, our great high priest, this our offering of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, and unite us in the body of your Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice. We say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, give it for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise. We rejoice that we could commune with your Son this day. That when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he bore our sin, gave us grace, opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup show others the true vine. We whom the Spirit lights, may we give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope that you have set before us, so we and all your children shall be free. And the whole earth would praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 263, Lift High the Cross.
and the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you now and forever. Amen. Please be seated, and good morning to you all. I uh, don't have a whole lot of uh, special announcements this morning, so if there's any from the floor, you can let us know. I believe the bottle, baby bottle boomerang is wrapping up, and uh, anybody still in possession of said bottles should get them to Mrs. Roberts, right, as soon as possible. Um, we are also, I believe, bringing in candy as for, are we doing the... Valentine's Day? Uh, all college students who have already tuned out because you're used to tuning out teachers' voices um, should ignore the following announcement, but uh, yes. So um, anyway, so uh, all of you know, wink, wink. Um, anyway, so uh, see, who can we see for more information on that? Mrs. Roberts. Yes. Just always see Mrs. Roberts uh, first for virtually anything. Um, and uh, other than that, just a reminder that we'll be continuing with our uh, Christian education this morning. Uh, Mr. Uh, Kelly will be continuing to lead uh, from the book Gentle and Lowly. And so we invite you after a time of fellowship to uh, join us for that. And yeah, we should mention this Friday is Friday evening prayer. We've gone to the third Friday of the month, which would be this Friday. So, yeah, it's planned to be at the church, and we haven't made the, the meal arrangements yet. It'll probably be like pizza, and we'll figure that out. So. Cool. In case you could not uh, hear uh, from from home, Friday evening prayer is moving um, permanently, we think, or at least uh, for, for a season to the third Friday of the month, and that is to accommodate the fact that we have been uh, assigned by the Oakland County Jail Chaplain's Office to the fourth Friday of the month for uh, leading church services there. So to make sure that we have uh, uh, enough people available to do that. Any other announcements from the floor? All right. Well. excused.